We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing Rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion. We're talking the passing revolution and how it impacts fantasy leagues in 2019 on Roto-Viz Radio. What's up, Roto-Viz? Hi, everyone. Welcome on into Rotoviz Radio, brought to you by the FFPC. I'm Dave Cabin, Senior Fantasy Analyst at Rotoviz. We have a guest tonight that joined the Rotoviz team this summer and has been crushing it with one of the most popular series of the summer, and he's back at it with another currently, and that man is Ryan Collinsworth. What's going on, Ryan? Thanks for coming on the show this week. Oh, thanks, Dave. It's a pleasure, man. So before we get into these awesome articles that you went through, what is the one thing that has you most excited about this season? Oh, man. So excited, if I'm being just dead honest with you, is the start of the college football season, not the NFL. So I'm a, I'm a huge college football DFS guy, and that's my first love. So more than anything, that's what I'm stoked about. I Especially love that. because... Oh, yeah, yeah, so... I actually, um, despite being from New England, uh, college football has always been my favorite sport. I follow it less now with such a focus on NFL. But we actually, up in New Hampshire, do not have college football DFS, and I'm crushed by that. 
Oh, that sucks, dude. I actually have a friend of mine who, God, I can't remember if he was living in Maryland or living in Pennsylvania, but regardless, he's a huge college football DFS guy, and he literally moved last year state to state (laughs) to make sure that he could actually play during the season. That is an incredible testament to that man's will to play college football DFS. I love it. Yeah. Uh, So what, um, what team are you a fan of? So I grew up here in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. So my team happens to be the NC State Wolfpack. Nice. And uh, it's, um, I mean, I'm sure everybody gets it on the whole tobacco road thing for college basketball that college sports down here matter a lot, whether you're a Carolina Duke fan or a state fan. Nationally, it's Carolina and Duke, obviously. But to us down here, state matters, East Carolina, Wake Forest, all of that kind of wrapped in. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've been a lifelong Florida State fan for no apparent reason other than my grandparents used to bring me back like Florida State stuff for since you know like before I could remember um, because they'd go down to Florida in the winters and that just kind of got me hooked so that whole uh, you know all of the ACC happenings I'm I'm definitely pretty into yeah and then uh, as far as the NFL is concerned because that's obviously what we're going to be talking about (laughs) um, less excited and more intrigued like from an intellectual level I'm really really interested in all of these new NFL coaching fits. And, you know, I know every single year we get new NFL coaches that are moving around, new head coaches, new offensive coordinators, and so forth. But this year feels particularly juicy, um, for better or for worse. We got, like, Matt LaFleur with Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. And, you know, Matt LaFleur, the guy who hamstrung Derrick Henry last year. And now he's got Aaron Jones, and people are hoping for Aaron Jones to be unleashed. And this is the same guy, now head coach in Green Bay, who kept Derrick Henry from flourishing, in my opinion, last year. So there's like a tension there. Then we got Bruce Arians resurfacing in Tampa Bay, which is just like a feel-good story all around, whether you're a fantasy fan or not. Everybody knows about the narrative of Cliff Kingsbury in Arizona with Kyler Murray and David Johnson. I think it was an underrated hire to get Vic Fangio away from the Bears and now with the Broncos. I think the Bears are going to feel that, and I think the Broncos are going to be really greatly improved by that with the talent, natural talent they have on defense already. And then even some small stuff like Dirk Cutter coming back to Atlanta, finally getting rid of Sarkeesian and moving past those years, and even John DeFilippo in Jacksonville and what he could maybe do with Leonard Fournette. So that's those are the things I'm most intrigued by in the first four weeks of the NFL season. That's interesting. Um, you mentioned the Broncos. I don't think that we've actually talked about them very much uh, uh, on the pod yet this summer. Um, but yeah, for sure, there's been a lot of interesting hires. And for a number of reasons there, like, like you kind of outlined, I think there's some teams that are hard to project this season and we just don't know what we're going to expect. And there's some interesting running backs on the majority of the teams that you mentioned. So with that in mind, let's start talking about this passing revolution series that you've been working on, mm-hmm. because I think that going through those is going to give the listeners an idea of like some of the key things that we've been focusing on at Rotoviz this summer. And I think also will give a pretty good context to at least what our view of the 2019 season feels like. Uh, so this was an eight part series. It's really dense. We probably won't make through it through all of it, but I do want to talk about some of the key takeaways. So we all know how ridiculous the passing stats were at the end of last season, but why don't you break down for us kind of what you were looking 
to figure out when you started working on this series and just kind of like frame up your research for us? Okay. So when I started this research project, I did not have any preconceived notion of what I was going to find or necessarily what I was going to look for, but I knew what the stimulus for the research was. And it was this narrative from last season really led spearheaded by Patrick Mahomes and his like sophomoric ascent that last season marked this passing revolution. I mean, across media outlets and especially, you know, on cable television, that term was thrown around constantly. So I ran with that and I wanted to evaluate if last season even really was a passing revolution right. or not. I, I kind of fashioned myself as like a, like an enthusiastic skeptic. So even <laughs> though I saw with my eyes on the field that passing was killing it and that the best teams in the league were the best at it, I wanted to go to the numbers and see if the data confirmed that for me. Like, are teams literally passing more? If so, by how much? Is it fractional or is it significant? And then after that point, if, if that's true, what does all that additional passing mean for the different fantasy skill positions? Does the rising tide lift all ships? Or is target share and PPR point distribution kind of becoming consolidated in the hands of the few? It's kind of like when you, you draft in an auction league. Yep. If you're, a, if you're a 10-team league and the budget is $200, okay, that's one thing. If you expand to 12 teams and everybody has a $250 budget, the inflation goes crazy um, and you get this massive skew where the top just takes more and more and more than it ought to. And so I wondered if there's just increased passing, if there's increased equity going into the league, what does that mean for the distribution of targets and PPR points league-wide across the different positions? So that's kind of what set it up. And what I found, really interestingly, is last season wasn't a passing revolution, at least not in the way that I defined it ahead of time. The passing numbers we saw last year are pretty consistent to what we would have seen in 2012 and every year between. What actually happened last year is that there was an efficiency revolution. So we had... Not the most pass attempts in history, not necessarily the most passing yards in history. I think it was second. But what we did have is the single best yards per play, yards per rush attempt, and yards per pass attempt since 2003. And that's what we were seeing on television was this kind of final um, vindication for a lot of us stat heads out here who have been yelling at TV screens about plus EV situations for so long. Well, last year we finally got a little bit of it and it was the most efficient year in NFL history. That's a fascinating finding um, because as you mentioned, there kind of was this narrative last year. And I think a key piece of that was the emergence of Patrick Mahomes. I'm inclined to say that had it, the production, if the production that he had last season had come from an Aaron Rodgers or a Drew Brees or even a Tom Brady, somebody that we've seen do this before, we might have had a different perception. Yes, there would have been the focus on the passing, but kind of that narrative that there were all of these players coming out of seemingly nowhere, even though, of course, if you've been following at Rotoviz, we loved Mahomes, but there was also some other rookie passers generating excitement. I think that probably contributed to it. And it's really interesting to note upon that efficiency because – we know that, it, for the most part, efficiency metrics aren't sticky year over year. So we might have had an outlier last year in terms of efficiency, 
not so much in that there was this level of passing, but I think it's probably fair to assume that this passing trend that we've seen for a while now will continue. Uh, before we talk about that more, though, um, I do want to remind everybody to head over to Rotoviz, check out this series, and of course, you can get a 10% listener-only discount when you sign up through the podcast homepage, rotoviz.com forward slash podcast. And don't forget that Rotoviz Patreon is back and better than ever. Patronships start at just $6 per month, and in addition to supporting the ridiculous amount of shows that we put out each and every week, you'll also gain access to our RV Radio Slack channel where you can interact with the team, pick our brains, crowdsource managerial decisions, and a whole lot more. So check that out too, patreon.com forward slash rotovizradio. So, in part one... You reference a resurgence of the wide receiver one. Naturally, this falls in line with many of the things that we've been preaching for years now, as I was just mentioning, with this passing in mind. Is that going to continue in 2019? Can we bank on these wide receiver ones sticking around? Or was last year just so efficient that uh, it's hard to anticipate it happening again? I tentatively believe that it's going to continue. I don't know if we're going to continue with the same trajectory of things getting even more efficient or even more slanted towards wide receiver one in 2019 than it was last year. But I also don't have any meaningful statistical evidence to point to the contrary. Right. So so in part six and seven of the eight-part series, I looked at wide receiver really in depth. And what I tried to do, like I did at running back and tight end and, and all the fantasy positions, was I tried to cut up the group of wide receivers across each season according to as many different trenches as possible or like these uh, you know these tiers or groups or ADP round or PPR score or target share percent I literally I took everything and tried to group our whole wide receiver sample population accordingly and what I found was that wide receiver doesn't experience nearly the same volatility or fluctuation from group to group or trench to trench, no matter how you cut it up, mm. no matter what measure you're looking at, as either running back or tight end does. And what I see is it's not close. I mean, like, there's barely any movement across any metric for any group from season to season. So let's kind of do a mental exercise yep. here. One thing that doesn't change is... The group of PPR wide receiver ones, you know, assume you're in a 12-team league, the top 12 wide receivers in PPR scoring, their total combined target share every single season for the last 15 seasons has been the same to within 0.1%. Okay, which that, is, that's insane. That's ridiculous. Yeah, that is. That really is. And that consistency holds for PPR wide receiver twos, so that's 13 to 24 wide receiver threes, fours, and so forth. It gets a tiny bit more volatile as you move down the list a little, a little bit further, but these are negligible differences compared to what we see in the other positions. So we can effectively, as much as we can in any fantasy activity or statistical activity, we can consider that to be a flat, reliable trend. But as I noted earlier, efficiency improved last year. And efficiency has been improving in the passing game specifically, not necessarily rushing, but in the passing game for a couple years now. So if target share is consistent from wide receiver tier to wide receiver tier, 
but players are getting more efficient at what they're doing with those targets, then wide receiver one is naturally going to outpace wide receiver twos and so forth by a greater differential. And in fact, wide receiver one outscored wide receiver two as a group by a greater differential last season than ever before in fantasy history, at least for the time frame that I was looking at since 2002. And I can't find any logical rationale to refute the idea that that's just going to hold again this season. Wow, there is a lot to unpack there. There is a lot to unpack. Um, One of the things that struck me as you were talking about it, we certainly can see, at least anecdotally, right, if you think about the Julio Joneses of the world, the Antonio Browns, A.J. Greens, Odell Beckham, those players have stuck from season to season. You try to do that exercise with running back. It's just much harder. But the beautiful thing about that, with us being a site that is more focused on wide receivers probably than any other site, it does speak to the fact that as much as we can, like you said, you have a good idea of what you're getting with wide receivers, which does allow you to implement that into a number of approaches. Uh, and I'm going to kind of pick your brain on that in a little bit. But before we uh, go too far here, you've also incorporated some interesting analysis on players. Nick Chubb was one of my absolute favorite prospect probably of the last five years. I loved him coming out of school. Now, one thing that we've seen is that it's going to be hard to bank on him being super involved in the passing game, which, you know, clearly at this point, that's a big role of what a running back can do. Um, I believe that you have a bit of a negative take, if you will, um, on Chubb this year, but are there any alternatives that you've discovered? Yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll briefly kind of break down my general position on Nick Chubb and it's, it's based on the, the analysis that I did in parts two and parts three on running back production. Running back is an interesting fantasy position because, Unlike wide receiver and tight end, running backs can contribute in two different fundamental categories, rushing and receiving. So I could kind of manipulate the data and and look at things a little bit uniquely there. So what I did from season to season, looking at the running back position, was break up individual player PPR points and groups, like I did for wide receiver PPR points, into you know, PPR points that came from rushing statistics versus PPR points that came from receiving statistics. And I created a divide there. And what I found was that in the last two seasons in particular, PPR RB1s on average report a 50-50 split between rushing and receiving statistics as far as what loads on their total PPR production. So that, that's kind of the baseline as what defines a modern RB1 that I found. RB2s, by contrast, are more like a 70 to 30 split rush heavy Mm. on average over the last several seasons. So the problem with Chubb is that last season, his split was 76% rushing to 24% receiving, which is a far cry away from the 50-50 split that we've seen for RB1s over the last two years. And it's precisely in line for what defines an average RB2 based on my analysis. So that's kind of, that forms kind of the basis for why I'm low on Chubb this year. But I want to kind of empathize with you. I also loved Chubb coming out of college. And I wrote an article last offseason 
that formally advised everyone to go <laughs> get Chubb because I didn't believe in Carlos Hyde anymore. And I thought that given the system that Cleveland was going to run, that Chubb would be a fantastic fit. And it worked out great, and now I'm, I'm reversing course on it. Yep. I mean, the, pro- the frustrating thing is that in college at Georgia, Chubb was a pretty reasonable receiver, right. all things I agree. considered. And another thing that's frustrating, another Georgia receiver, Sony Michelle, I also thought was a pretty reasonably good receiving back, or at minimum, a great back in space on the college level. And New England didn't use him like that at all. So we have new information now about how coaches perceive their skill set rather than what we saw with their eyes. And that's kind of my my reasoning for being low on Chubb. Well, I think that makes perfect sense to me. And it's interesting when we bucket these players into groups, kind of focusing on the attributes of what makes a fantasy RB1, what makes a fantasy RB2. Um, lots of times at Rotoviz, with a zero running back strategy, we're focusing on players that you can get late in the draft. And one of the things that we might be looking for is players that have a receiving skill set because that can allow them to propel up a depth chart. But a lot of these players that we really like, in addition to being able to receive, also have chops as a straight rusher. And that's kind of what you're like. To me, those are the best running back or zero running back prospects, the ones who then can put it all together because that's why we see the guys like Le'Veon Bell, Christian McCaffrey, Saquon Barkley at the top of the rankings, those type of players year in and year out. This episode is brought to you by Decoy Wines of Sonoma, California. As you gather with family and friends this summer, experience the best of wine country with Decoy by Duckhorn. Winemaker Tyson Wolf spends every vintage focused on harvesting grapes and crafting wines from the finest vineyards. Whether it's our flagship Cabernet or crisp and refreshing rosé, Decoy has just the wine for your discerning taste. Ask for us at your local wine shop or visit decoywines.com slash celebrate to locate our wines near you. Whether you're firing up the grill, hosting an alfresco get-together, or enjoying the warm summer nights, let Decoy by Duckhorn elevate your occasion. Um, Yeah, unfortunately... I, I don't think Kareem Hunt is going to factor into this uh, offense, but I, I just can't see a scenario, especially when I was working on my projections, where you get Chubb involved enough as a rusher, given the other weapons that they have, that it can compensate for that lack of uh, receiving production. Before we move off of Cleveland, because we're talking about them, do you have thoughts on Duke Johnson? I feel like as long as he's on that team, he's still going to be used in enough spots that he is a worthwhile player to roster and that you shouldn't forget about. Oh man, rest in peace, Duke Johnson. <laughs> like his 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 career is not over by any stretch, but he has just gotten like the short end of the stick ever since he entered the league. He's unbelievably efficient. He's unbelievably explosive when he actually receives volume. But like every single time he's got a little bit momentum on his side where you feel like the stars are going to align for him to get a little more usage, at least more consistently, something else happens to kind of fill the void. Last season, the concern with Chubb was, or not with Chubb, but with, uh, with Duke Johnson yep. was the presence of Jarvis Landry. There was this kind of conversation about, well, Jar- you know, Jarvis is a slot guy in theory. He's played on the outside plenty, but he's a slot guy. How's that going to work for, Ch- for, uh, Duke Johnson, who's going to be, you know, operating out of the slot at least a decent amount of the time. And now this this year, not only do you have Landry, but you also have Odo Beckham, who has historically torched people out of the slot and is capable of lining up wherever. So 
all things considered, in my opinion, you kind of have to make up your mind on whether you like David Njoku or Duke Johnson. That's where I'm at. Because I think there's only space for one of them to matter, and the other one might get shafted. Or there's going to be enough volatility and variability from week to week that one of them or both of them is not a consistent redraft option. In best ball, I see the logic for Duke a whole heck of a lot more than I do in redraft. Yeah, that's definitely a perfectly fair way to conceptualize it. Um, I think that Johnson's one of those guys that I will take um, in redraft leagues if he's there in the end and not so much expecting him to be a rotational player, but to kind of feel out how things are going to work for that team in the beginning of the season because there is that potential there. And I'm also really intrigued to see Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham back together. Um, Going back to their time in college, it was hard to appreciate at the time just how good these two receivers were. And in many respects, you could have left watching a number of those games thinking that Landry was actually the better receiver. So I Mm. I think that we're just going to see a lot of interesting things from that offense with these two players there this year. Um, taking things back to your series, um, we talked about a surprising find. Was there anything intuitive that was reassuring to confirm that maybe something we all know, but we don't pay enough attention to in our minds as we start preparing for our leagues? So I want I want to preface my answer to this one by saying off top to anybody listening that I don't consider myself a zero RB like Stan. Mm-hmm. I've I mean, like I've, I see the the logic in it clearly. Like I care about data science before anything else, and so I understand the logic, the meta game of zero RB. But that's never been my preference for how to draft. So, like, keep that in mind when I say what I'm about to say. Yeah, the, hey, that that's awesome. This is this is the type of stuff that I wanted to have you on for. So, the most intuitive thing that was like reassuring to confirm out of my data set is how RB3s operate in fantasy. I already talked previously about the the glaring difference between what constitutes an RB1, the 50-50 split, and how RB2s are much more rush-heavy, more like 70-30. Well, what I also found is that fantasy RB3s are 50-50 players, just like RB1s are. Their distribution of touches between rushing and receiving is almost equal and has been for about the last seven seasons, they just don't have the same opportunity, like raw total usage, Mm. that an RB1 has. And that is more than likely to do with the player's inherent skill set. But when you start looking historically at breakout players, at least at the running back position, nearly all of them go through the RB3 tier to arrive at the RB1 tier eventually, um, unless they're an RB1 breakout as a rookie, which obviously happens like Saquon last year. So most often, the kinds of players that eventually make an RB1-style breakout are guys like James White and Tariq Cohen and Duke Johnson, who did that in 2017, and Deion Lewis, who did it for most of the season in 2017. And what's interesting when we look at notable RB3s from last year who boasted this more or less 50-50 split and were in this RB3 tier, is I've got four names for you. Austin Eckler was an RB3 last year, and now we don't know the situation with Melvin Gordon, but he could inherit opportunity. 
Dalvin Cook was an RB3 last year, and I think everybody with a pulse understands that he has RB1 upside locked in him. Mark Ingram was an RB3 last season, and I'm not claiming he's going to be an RB1, but I just want to throw it in there. And then finally, the last guy is Carrion Johnson. And Carrion Johnson is a guy I'm particularly high on. You asked me earlier who's, a, who's my favorite Chubb alternative. It's Carrion. And it's not just because of Theo Riddick being cut. It's because he had a 58 to 42 PPR split rushing to receiving last year, which is much, much closer to 50-50 than Chubb's was. And when I look at him run, I see the Alvin Kamara, Le'Veon Bell, Arian Foster type of player. I see a patient runner who accelerates with, with ridiculous gas. He, um, he plays like his hair is on fire, but he doesn't, like, he doesn't hit that third gear until he's uh, sufficiently decided that it's his time to go. His acceleration from zero to 10, so that acceleration to get to the edge or to burst through the hole is similar to the you know, epic guys that I just mentioned, and he's just as patient just like them. He doesn't have good long speed, which is also true of the guys that I mentioned. He has soft hands, like the guys I mentioned, and his patience and acceleration is what makes him a great screener. It's what makes him a great guy <laughs> in space. And I just, when I see him play, and then I look at his stats from last year, and the fact that he was an RB3 last year, which fits a trend that I found, it's just like, I'm all over that guy this year. Um, th- I-, I love to hear that opinion. Um, and also your findings that backed that up because I think that that group of players perhaps with the exception of Ingram or definitely Mm -hmm. I'm going to say in my opinion with the exception of Ingram are all the types of players that you could picture especially in the case of Cook because we almost or or it's reasonable to assume that had he not been hurt in his rookie season that was a definite possibility those are the type of players that we could see this happening with now a really interesting thing last night I was in an expert auction for the huddle of USA Today and I managed to get Tariq Cohen for $8, which was so much less than all of these other players that would fall into the same range. And I also got mm-hmm. Austin Eckler for, I believe it was 10 or 11. Now, of course, pricing varies so much during auctions that the, the focus of me bringing this up isn't really on those numbers in particular. But the price that they were going to in relation to other players just shows that you have potential with players like Johnson, like Cohen, like um, Eckler to really kind of exploit things in your draft. And those are guys that I'm going after. Given your analysis there, I have to assume in addition to Johnson, you're excited about the rest of that grouping. Oh, yeah. Every single name you mentioned is on my radar this year. Nice. Although Dalvin Cook actually was really interesting, ended up going for more than David Johnson in the same amount as Ezekiel Elliott, uh, which I was really surprised by. Seeing as you did bring up Cook, I can't imagine that you have him up there in that tier with with those top-level guys. No, I don't. And I'm also assuming, from what I understand about auction, having played it a lot over the last five years in particular, is that was probably a situation where someone set the market early at running back and people got scared of that price and backed off, but then the pool of true RB1 started to dwindle, and Cook got brought up, people got desperate, and his price got ridiculous. That's, in my opinion, probably what went down there, because his raw valuation ought not be that high. I agree. So actually, 
what I think happened here was we started off the auction with all of these big names at running or with three big names at running back. Then somebody pivoted to the first wide receiver, uh, which was Tyreek Hill, who I actually got for 40 bucks. And then it was my turn to nominate. So I threw up Dalvin Cooks. It was actually pretty surprising. He was the only fourth running back. But what I think happened was we were into this established price range uh, and people just kind of went with it. I was actually very surprised to see him go at that price, though. Yeah, I, I mean, Cook's an interesting case. Uh, I'm I'm in the middle of a game script series now, and the part three, which is going to run tomorrow, I'm pretty sure. I, I get into Dalvin yep. Cook a little bit, and you know, basically more or less, I say it. He's his current ADP is RB11. I think that's more or less fair for him. But I also don't see a staggering difference statistically or in terms of projected game script between him and Devontae Freeman in Atlanta. And Freeman's going at RB16, and I consider him a really, really close arbitrage option to Dalvin. So I think there's even more reason to potentially hedge away from him. That said, I think people evaluating him as a potential RB1 is fair. He just shouldn't go anywhere near the same auction prices the guys that you listed. He's not a top five, six asset. Completely agree. Um, Mark Ingram or Latavius Murray? Who do you like? <sighs> this is a dumb question. Uh, Mark Ingram in redraft, if I have to choose, <laughs> and Latavius Murray in best ball. I mean, we touched on the Mark Ingram thing. I've got conflicting data on my end about what we should expect from Ingram. Here's the, I mean, here's the, here's the good story for him. He is going to be in a lot of high-efficiency situations, all things considered, early in the season because backside linebackers are going to be frozen with Lamar Jackson. Yep. That's, that's the truth. But in spite of the fact that we have this image of him as having a strong receiving skill set from his time in New Orleans, his career target share is not like you know something ridiculous. It's pretty average, all things considered. It just got propped up in the New Orleans system. My big concern with him, which is my concern with a lot of running backs from you know, what we've already discussed so far in this pod, is that I don't think he's going to get enough receiving action to be super viable. And the, another humongous problem is I loved Justice Hill at Oak State last year, <laughs> and I think there's, a, a, there's an above-average likelihood that Hill supplants Ingram midseason. And that is why I prefer Ingram in redraft context where you can actually capitalize on some value, especially early, but not in best ball. And then Murray, the reason why he's solid in best ball is I can't, I can't foresee anybody in the New Orleans backfield supplanting that, you know, Saints RB two role, which you know has been a traditional stalwart among fantasy for a long time. So I think his situation is more stable. But I doubt I would actually ever start him at my flex in any league this year. That's interesting. See, I, I feel pretty decent about Murray, and I actually envision that if I do have him on a team, I will flex him a fair amount. Um, the, the real interesting thing to me about the Ravens this year is I am just not buying into Lamar Jackson. I think we're going to see a case where he does not progress as we might expect him to. Um, and a large reason for that is it's you know, we always feel like these young quarterbacks are going to take significant steps forward, but it's, I do think that it's rare that that happens. And then there's going to be an adjustment that will be made for his rushing, I think. And then 
if you look at his, and I haven't released these on the site yet, but historical projections that I've done um, for a couple of years now, which are basically looking at a player's statistical output from one season, finding players that at the same position, relatively um, the same age, that produce the same stat lines uh, with the same experience level, how they these matches perform in the next season. And for Jackson, it's not... Um, anything that impressive and I worry about how that will impact the Ravens offense and then like you said I think it's very reasonable that Justice Hill manages taking away that role from Ingram so that's one of the reasons when I first saw the move I got excited but now I just can't be as excited um we have a lot more that I want to talk about I don't know if we'll be able to but I do want to take a brief second to mention our good friends at the FFPC, the home of season-long high-stakes fantasy football. It's been 10 years since the FFPC filled their first Dynasty League, and they've now grown to be the world's largest Dynasty League commissioner, with leagues as high as a $5,000 entry fee. FFPC leagues are active and competitive, and not a single league has ever folded. Brand new startup Dynasty leagues are forming right now at $77 and up in standard Superflex and Best Ball formats. And for those of you ready for your greatest challenge, take a look at this year's FFPC main event. It is the world's biggest event in season-long fantasy football, and this year it's coming at you with a half a million dollar grand prize and over 3.1 million in total prizes. It takes place in Las Vegas. Make your way out to Vegas for the three-day weekend of live drafts and festivities at the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino or draft online from the comfort of your home. Main event drafts begin August 23rd and run through the start of the season, so make sure that you get into all of the action over at the FFPC, myffpc.com, the home of season-long high-stakes fantasy football. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. You shouldn't go to Barnes & Noble and buy 10,000 books just so you can build a book fortress and yell out, I am your book leader. You shouldn't buy 147 copies of War and Peace, stuff them inside turkeys and serve them at Thanksgiving as Turbukens. And you definitely shouldn't buy up all the copies of Dork Diaries, causing the neighborhood kids to stage a protest in your front yard. But you could. Because at the Barnes & Noble Book Hall, you can get over 1,000 titles for 50% off. Stock up at your local Barnes & Noble. Turbukens are fictitious and should not be cooked at home. One of your pieces promotes early tight end. Is this in a vacuum for you? Or are there certain leagues where you're going to deviate from, from that strategy? So in my write-up, what I looked at at tight end was kind of the, the concentration of targets, PPR points, and overall fantasy power with different groups inside of the tight end position. And what I found in, in recent history was that the top three tight ends, the current ones of Kittle, Ertz, and Kelsey, are so far and away better than everybody else at that position that I could not justify not getting one this season. I did have some data that suggested that you know a tight end four to tight end six range is still viable. And if you miss on the top three, you should still grab a tight end from that section. But I don't have any strong data points that hint at late round tight end being a viable option or even, you know, streaming tight end off of waivers. 
Now, Kittle last year is an interesting case because he, by no means, was a top three drafted tight end. He was a late-round tight end. So if you believe that Mark Andrews is this year's George, George Kittle, or if you believe in somebody else, then by all means, go shoot your shot. It worked last year. But for me, I'm definitely grabbing a top three tight end. And you asked me if I would deviate from it. In theory, yes. In practice, I haven't. <laughs> the only the only drafts I've truly liked that I've done this offseason, whether they've been real or a mock, are ones where I do grab one of those top three guys early. I've yet to mock into that second tier of tight ends at a price that I like because from rounds five to eight or nine when I would consider taking them, uh, you know, conservatively, there's so much rich running back value, the kinds of guys that you mentioned, you know, previously that I start reverse engineering and I'm like, okay, if this running back value is here, I should go early wide receiver um, and and go ahead and grab this tight end so I don't have to worry about that and miss on those guys in the mid-round. So it becomes a roster construction issue, not a player value issue. Absolutely. And Matt and I have talked a fair amount um, about the concept of going for tight ends early this season. And I've been saying for a while now that I am more inclined to do it this season than I have been at any point in the last five years. And the other key component of it, for me at least, is that at this point, it's reasonable to assume that Kittle and Ertz and Kelsey can score so many points that they're going to be in that range of those top-level wide receivers. So it's almost like you can remove the consideration that they are a tight end and just view them as a player. And there's many cases I would much rather have Travis Kelsey than some of these very good wide receivers. So that's an interesting distinction. You mentioned Mark Andrews and how some people may have the opinion he can break out. I'm not 100% sold on Andrews. and A lot of that goes back to my trepidation with Baltimore. Do you like Andrews this year? And if you were looking at options that aren't those top three tight ends, is he one that you would be interested in? Again, in theory, yes, he is one that I would be interested in. I liked the way he played at Oklahoma. And last year, especially as a rookie, his performance was really, we don't expect, you know, elite level performance or even decent level performance out of rookie tight ends traditionally. Everybody gave Mike Gusecki a pass last year. But Mark Andrews turned out, you know, really viable weeks consistently last year. That's not anything to kind of hold our nose up at. But again, you know, for fear of being are not, you know, trying not to be hypocritical here. I have zero shares of Mark Andrews this year. Zero. Makes sense. From every single yeah. from every single mock that I've done, there's not yet been a mock where I looked at my board or my series of boards and decided that Mark Andrews was the best player available or I hadn't already sufficiently locked out locked up my tight end position. And so I've I've yet to draft into a situation where I actually accept his value. So I can't formally advocate for him even though I do like him as a player. Like, roster construction has never put me in a position to get him. Yeah, I can completely get that. And the other thing, for as good as Andrews may have been, um, he's still only going to be a second-year tight end. Uh, Part six of your series focuses on wide receiver. Were there any position-wide trends that you think we might be able to capitalize on this season? It's certainly possible that we've kind of already brushed upon that. 
Yeah, I mean, it's this is really more of an appendix to something that we said that I talked about earlier. I, I remarked upon the remarkable consistency of wide receiver tiers from season to season, right? Yep. Well, there's one more thing that's overwhelmingly consistent about them, and that's our ability to predict which wide receivers are going to be at the top of the pecking order. I, I did a, you know, within the context of this passing revolution study, I did a sub-study on ADP correlations for each position by season and cumulative over the last 15 years. And what I found is that our ability to predict uh, wide receiver end-of-season value through ADP the correlation for that easily, easily beat out all other positions consistently and defiantly. Uh, quarterback is like maybe a partial exception. We have years where that correlation is stupid high and then other years where it completely tanks. That's not the case for wide receiver at all. Running back, the correlation has waned almost every season since 2010. And tight end is almost as volatile as quarterback, but not the same strength. So wide receiver ADP correlations are, are stupid strong, relatively speaking. And that means that they're predictable right. in the projection sense, right. in addition to being predictable in the production sense. So like the, the natural tertiary conclusion from all of that is that my opinion in my article that wide receivers are the new running back. And that's what zero RB guys have been saying for forever now, but I'm, you know, kind of on board with it, I <laughs> guess. Um, they're easier to predict relative to other positions. So the obvious takeaway is grab them early and often, whether you're a zero RB fan or not, because elite wide receiver value is not easily found in later rounds or via waivers. And that's not necessarily the case at running back in particular. For sure. And I love the way that this series kind of highlights some of the inherent characteristics and the differences between the positions. Naturally, at every position, we have various tiers and there are slam dunk options, but we've seen it now and it's backed up by your research at wide receiver. Like you said, rarely do we see people come out of nowhere and ascend to those top tiers, which is different than at the other positions. And I really wanted to have Ryan on tonight just to encourage you to go out and, and look at this series because I think it's just going to give you a really good foundation for planning out your roster construction this season. And it's going to be hard for, it, well, you know, we're almost done. And I think there's still so much more in those reads that we didn't get to. Um, but uh, yeah, just a, a tremendous series. Uh, one thing or kind of switching gears here, right? One thing that we commonly get suckered into too often before drafts is focusing on talking only about the early rounds. Um, are you going to be doing anything specific this year in the mid or late rounds to better position yourself for success? Because uh, I think that, you know, too often we're overlooking these rounds. I don't know if maybe there's a couple of players that you like or a couple of things that you've picked up from a roster construction standpoint. Kind of open-ended for you there. Yeah, for me, this is almost entirely about roster construction, this question. Yep. Because, I mean, you're right. People get caught up in comparing individual players one-to-one, -one, uh, especially in early round rankings. But in a snake format in particular, it's unbelievably rare that you ever have to make those one-to-one -one comparison based decisions. You just draw your draft slot, and where you are in the snake largely determines what kinds of players you're going to be able to draft for the duration of that snake. So the most important thing that you can do, in my view, is construct a strong roster 
format in the early rounds. It's not as critical to me precisely who you get, but rather what positions you focus on. For example, this year, from experience, if I've gone three rounds and I don't yet have a wide receiver, I am very concerned. And I haven't felt that way in previous seasons. I, I mean, I think Sean Siegel actually did a uh, an article somewhat recently where he talked about how he feels this year that wide receiver is not yep. overly deep. And I feel that too through mocks. So because it gets, you know, the, the crop of wide receiver gets gets way thin more quickly than people may realize, it's super difficult to make up ground if you dig yourself a hole like that. And as I mentioned previously, in those rounds five to eight, I'm consistently targeting and getting guys like Tevin Coleman, James White, Tariq Cohen, Kenyon Drake, David Montgomery, Miles Sanders, Austin Eckler. Not all those guys are obviously are always there. But I'm typically able to roster three of them in combination. Meanwhile, if you consistently stick with wide receiver and or a top flight tight end early, you end up drafting a roster. Like this is my most recent mock right before we did this podcast. I went Juju, Kittle in the second. I got Stefan Diggs, Brandon Cooks, and DJ Moore. That was my first five rounds in a non-expert draft. And to me, that's outrageous. That's a pretty, if, pretty strong start. <laughs> that's outrageous. Like if... if uh, if a casual takes our advice and does that against other casuals, he's going to mop up for sure. And so, and so to me, the roster construction in that fashion is what I'm really fixated on. And those middle rounds are mostly about running back. And even the late rounds to me are mostly about running back because I love Paris Campbell and Terry McLaurin as much as the next guy, but rookie wide receiver breakouts are much rarer than running back. And I'd rather load up in a whole bench of guys like, Alexander Madison, Jalen Samuels, Damian Harris, Darwin Thompson, Tony Pollard. I want all of them, as many as I can hoard on my bench. For sure. Two main reasons there, right? The running backs will have more upside, and there's also more of a likelihood that they're going to make their way onto your roster because part of the thing is you're not going to know when these breakouts are going to happen. And with a receiver, it's hard to know week to week if you see a young rookie have a strong game. Whereas with the running back, it's going to be pretty evident to you that they're going to be in line for that workload. So I agree all around there. Before we close out, give me one player outside of the first three rounds to target and one to avoid in 2019. My big mid to mid late round target this season is Tevin Coleman. And, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm currently in the middle of a game script series mm -hmm. and you know, tomorrow I've got an edition coming out, and then later this week there'll be another one. Let's, I'm, I'm going to kind of keep it tongue-in-cheek here and close to the vest, but let's just say <laughs> there is compelling evidence for targeting Tevin Coleman this year because of game script specifically. Um, he's the most obvious, you know, target that stands out in my data set from this entire series that I'm doing, and there's been a lot of good stuff from that too. So, you know, that's kind of a bit of a tease. I probably shouldn't do that to you guys, but Tevin Coleman is the dude that I'm focused on targeting. And then avoiding, I've, I've been pretty outspoken through my work this offseason about avoiding rush-heavy players. We talked about Nick Chubb. I've also said avoid guys like Derrick Henry and Sony Michelle. But I'll add another to their list that I have not discussed in any article, and that's Darius Geis. My reasoning is that he has no receiving acumen to speak of from college at LSU. His best comps in our box score scout are like Eddie Lacy, Jeremy Hill, also LSU, Nick Chubb, 
Trent Richardson or Sony Michelle. And I think people underestimate his backfield competition with Chris Thompson, Adrian Peterson, and Bryce Love, who, again, as a college football DFS guy, well, he was often injured as a senior, but he focused his whole season on trying to make himself more appealing to NFL teams as a receiver. And I'm just afraid because in part of competition and also in part because he has no history as a receiver that we could be looking at kind of a poorer version of 2017 rookie Joe Mixon. Mm-hmm. It's like, can you see the talent? Yes, 100%. Is he going to have the proper opportunity? Sort of. Is he going to have the proper kind of usage to be relevant in PPR specifically? I don't think so. couple of thoughts there. I wasn't super into Geis at the beginning of looking at that prospect class. Then I got really, really excited about him. When I was building the Combine Explorer, the first two players that I looked at were Nick Chubb and then Darius Geis. Uh, and it was funny, yeah, that, that um, you know, there was overlap there in their matches. But for as much as I liked Geis, I'm with you. I think even if you take away the concerns surrounding the injury that he had last year having now had a whole year removed not having played in an actual NFL game that roster and that situation in Washington is enough that you put it all together unfortunately he's just to stay away there's no way around it um Matt and I talked about this before do you think that there are any players in Washington that are actually worth rostering this season Maybe in Dynasty. But <laughs> Perfect answer. I'm, I'm, I'm being totally serious about it. I mean, I think, for example, in Dynasty, I think, you know, the, the Kelvin Harmon selection, I know I'm a state fan, so I'm a bit of a homer on this one, yep. but I think the Kelvin Harmon selection is like the writing on the wall for Josh Doxson because they more or less do the same thing. And I think Terry McLaurin is a, is a real value. He was excellent, excellent at Ohio State last year. I'm not particularly in love with anybody in the backfield. Dwayne Haskins has literally no mobility, but he, and he's also a short yardage thrower, so I don't see him in the same way I would do a guy like Ben Roethlisberger, who is maybe a similar body type, is difficult. I mean, there's been some hot takes on Jordan Reed lately, but, dude, like, in redraft, I have yet to draft a Redskins player. And I stand by the idea that in Dynasty Leagues is maybe the only situation where I would start considering it. I'm in full support of that statement. Well, hey, um, this has been an awesome episode. And again, I just can't recommend enough reading through those articles uh, that Ryan did. So thanks for coming on, Ryan. We definitely need to get you uh, back on the show. I would be uh, overjoyed to do so, man. Excellent. All right. Well, the next time Friedman's gone, um, which is, you know, uh, it happens enough that I'm sure we'll be able to get you back on. So be- where can people uh, find you? Like what's uh, your Twitter, hand- Twitter handle? Uh, yeah, you can find me at Twitter at R.A. Collinsworth. Spelled just like Chris Collinsworth, but we have no relation, I promise you. Uh, that so was also going to be a question of mine. Yeah, don't, don't come at me with the – I mean, people have done that my whole life. No, no relation, zero relation, but R.A. Collinsworth on Twitter. Okay, so actually, um, just talking about Collinsworth, I, I normally like to end this show with like non-super like super fantasy-related questions. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, an announcer that a fair amount of people like. If you could assemble your dream team for Monday Night Football – uh, now that thankfully we will not have uh, Jason Witten broadcasting, <laughs> uh, who would your dream team be for Monday Night Football? 
Uh, I'll go t- tongue-in-cheek on this one. I actually do want Jason Witten on Monday Night Football, but I want him paired with Tony Romo because I think the <laughs> uh, disparity in talent, knowledge, and overall eloquence between the two of them would create comedy out of something competitive. All right, yeah, I think that's actually a good answer. Would Booger still be uh, there in the in the Booger Mobile? Oh, I mean, that may honestly that may be too much. Yeah, I mean that may that may be too much of a sideshow. I, I say we go with somebody more reasonable there. All right, I like it. All right, well, thanks again for coming on, Ryan. And um, that's going to do it for today's show. I think that Friedman is back next week, uh, so we will be back to our regularly scheduled time of uh, recording on Monday night, dropping on Tuesday afternoon. So please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Dave Cabin FF and say it for us one more time. R.A. Collinsworth. Be sure to check out Rotoviz, and if there's any topics you want us to discuss or questions you'd like for us to answer, send an email to rotovizradio at gmail.com. And until next time, remember, it's not a fantasy if you believe it. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Factory.